Jeremy Allaire, and welcome to The Money Movement, a show where we explore the issues and ideas driving this brave new world of digital currency and blockchains. Today, we're going to be talking about digital dollar stablecoins and central bank digital currencies. We've seen this year in particular, but certainly over the past years, significant proliferation in digital dollar stablecoins. We know new digital dollar stablecoins uh, uh, associated with things like Libra are emerging. And this has really been uh, a very, very fast uh, moving part of the market. Uh, a regulatory frameworks emerging for these. And, and really, all of these are fundamentally private sector issued and operated technologies. Although increasingly, leading digital dollar stablecoins are operated through broader arrangements to use a phrase that the financial stability board has used for global stablecoin arrangements things like center consortium libra association and the like that have multiple stakeholders and are seeking to set standards now at the same time both the topic and the substance of central bank digital currency has also been emerging again for a host of reasons uh, C CBDC has emerged uh, in part uh, as a reaction to the private sector and internet-led uh, innovations of digital currencies. Uh, it's emerged because, well, frankly, some of the largest economies in the world are actively in the process of operationalizing new central bank digital currencies. Uh, this is part of this broader macro environment of the diminishment in the use of cash as a product from central banks, uh, desires for continued payment system innovation, uh, improving financial inclusion, broadening uh, and supporting uh, uh, cross-border transactions, all of these as, as factors driving the increased interest in CBDC. Now, some are saying that there really can only be one digital currency dollar or one digital yen or pick your currency. Uh, and that it's not really the role of the private sector to issue money if you view uh, stablecoins as private sector issued money. Uh, others are saying that digital dollar stablecoins are fundamentally a payment system innovation and that the private sector has led in this field for decades, in fact, even longer uh, and that standards and regulations and ultimately connectivity to central banks and their balance sheets can give us the best of both worlds. Really excited today to explore these issues on the money movement. Um, we are joined by Visa's head of crypto, Guy Sheffield, uh, Niha Narula, the director of MIT's Digital Currency Initiative, which is an institute that has been leading research and development in crypto, digital currency, and now central bank digital currency models, and Robert Bench, AKA Bob Bench, uh, AVP at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, and a key contributor and collaborator on the future of digital currency with the Federal Reserve. Welcome everyone. Good to be here, thank you. All right, Thanks, Thanks. Me. nice to see you all. Um, so cool. I, I, I think um, try and set the stage a little bit. There's a lot we can talk about. Um, uh, and and it's, it's really a pleasure to have each of you who I think bring really profound perspective on, on these topics. Um, but let's just get started with uh, with some quick introductions um, uh, and uh, and kind of kind of what, what brings you to the subject matter and uh, and then we'll dive in. Um, maybe uh, we'll start in the upper left or at least for me, the upper left with uh, with Guy. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. I'm Kai Sheffield. I'm on the global fintech product team at Visa, uh, where I lead our, our crypto products. Uh, so really excited to, to explore these issues today. Excellent. Neha? Thanks, Jeremy. Hi, everyone. My name is Neha Narula. I'm the director of the Digital Currency Initiative, which is based out of the MIT Media Lab. Uh, we focus on cryptocurrency um, and digital currency research and technology. Excellent. Bob? Hey, it's uh, Bob Bench. I'm an AVPO at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, and our team works on uh, general purpose CBDC research 
and exploratory uh, applied prototypes for CBDCs. Excellent. That sounds uh, it sounds cool. We're going to dig into what that means uh, uh, here. So, actually, um, maybe maybe we'll start uh, with with uh, uh, with you, Bob. And um, uh, I, I remember at one point uh, a meeting I had at the Federal Reserve uh, in the not too distant past, and I met someone who whose title was product manager for cash. And I thought that's pretty cool. There's a product manager for cash, and cash is a product of the central bank. And most people don't really think of it that way. Uh, like you know, we've got products that we sell as companies, but central banks have a product. It's called cash. Um, so, what's the role of cash as a product in the United States? And and then you know, how might that inform how the Fed thinks about digital cash? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And and I was surprised too when I came to the Fed from Circle. Right. And, you know, we had a lot of kind of product questions that Circle's great PMs thought about. The Fed PMs think the same way. What do our customers need? Uh, what's their use case? Uh, how do we make this easier for them to use, more accessible? Uh, so you think about just currency generally, right? For a currency's goal is to be a unit of account, a medium of exchange, and a store of value. And cash being the original form of currency here in the U.S., that's what we want it to be first and foremost. Um, and our cash office is really great at knowing their product and knowing their customers. Uh, so what, what is our product, right? So there's about 2 trillion of our product out there, right? In US of a $20 trillion money supply. Uh, of that $2 trillion, we have about 1.4 trillion or so of that that's hundreds. Uh, a decent amount of that, which is overseas. Uh, and then the remaining is smaller denominations. Uh, our economists also and product officers also understand how that money moves, where it moves, and why it's moving where it, where it is. Um, and so when we think about trying to build a cash alternative, certainly not a cash replacement, but what would a prototype cash alternative look like? You know, one of the key questions for us is, are we thinking more medium of exchange or are we thinking more store of value? Uh, and that's one of the critical questions that we needed to think about and bring in uh, the Digital Currency Initiative at MIT to help us think about. Because we think that you can weigh the technology to be more focused on store of value, say having a much more secure platform, or you can have it much more focused on a medium of exchange, which may require higher throughput and faster settlement. Um, and as you know, Jeremy, uh, those are really important technical trade-offs. Yeah. And, and so when we think about what's the goal, potential goal of a prototype GP CBDC, is are we looking for people to have something to store and is security the ultimate concern or do we need it to be fast, right? So you can get a cup of coffee very quickly. Um, and that's an important trade-off and why, you know, working with folks at, the, at MIT's DCI is so important to get the best answers in front of policymakers. That's, that's, uh, it's, it's great perspective. I mean, this is uh, obviously affects the broader cryptocurrency industry as people think about these trade-offs between security, scalability, and, and access. And access might be thought of as decentralization or sort of kind of who, who can participate. Um, and, and those all, you know, those all play off each other, obviously. And it's, it's cool to hear people at the Fed thinking about that. So uh, that's awesome, Bob. Um, uh, maybe a related, a related question, um, Kai, which I'll, I'll, I'll direct to you, which is, you know, when, when I think when people think about Visa um, and the vision of Visa, um, you even kind of hear it as this sort of building a cashless society. Um, and, and in some ways, you know, Visa represents for, for much of the mainstream world, uh, this move from analog to electronic money. Um, which has happened over over decades, and Visa's really led the way globally on that. Um, and you know, I, I think now clearly uh, Visa and and you in particular are are focused on cryptocurrency, digital cash models, the future. You know, how do you think about uh, digital cash in relation to historical electronic money? Yeah. So the the foundation of, of Visa was was built you know on the electronic movement of money. Um, you know, decades ago, you know, DHOC was talking about how, you know, money would become, you know, alphanumeric data uh, that can, you know, move across the world, you know, at the speed of light. And so, you know, we see, you know, digital currencies, you know, they, they represent an evolution of money uh, with these, you know, new forms of, you know, cryptographic, you know, bare uh, assets. And, 
you know, as money evolves, you know, we think it's, it's important for Visa's, you know, network and solutions, you know, to evolve with it, uh, to ensure that, you know, new forms of money can be transferred, you know, in a secure and convenient uh, manner. And so we're seeing increasing interest from clients across the world, you know, looking to utilize, you know, digital currencies uh, in new payment flows. Uh, and so, you know, given this interest, you know, we want to help to shape and support, you know, the role that digital currency can play, you know, within the existing payments ecosystem. Yeah, uh, that uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, I think we'll come back to some of the some of those issues, this sort of where are the boundaries of, uh, you know, digital cash, electronic money, payment systems that, you know, it's sort of, and, and the interesting thing about this space is that it all kind of is one big soup um, uh, as well. Um, uh, Neha, I, I know you've thought a lot about these trade-offs of security, scalability, um, decentralization. I mean, those are like, you know, fundamental things that I know have been work that you and, and your colleagues have, have, have looked at for, well, for a long time um, uh, at DCI. Um, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on those trade-offs as it relates to the specific prospect of, of, uh, of a digital cash product, uh, whether it's private sector or public-private or public altogether. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Um, you know, I think, and we've all been reiterating this, security is paramount, right? Um, if payment systems break, if uh, monetary policy goes awry, that has real ramifications on people's lives. They can't buy food, they can't buy medicine, they can't eat, they can't get paid. Um, and you know, we're seeing some of these things now with COVID as it's taking time for uh, stimulus checks to get mailed out, things like that. So it, security here, reliability, stability, that's priority number one with a digital cash system. I mean, I, and I'm sure, you know, the folks at Visa think about this all the time. Um, you know, I, I think we all have this vision of this really great future where we have money work the same way that information works now digitally, where we can program with it, where we can encapsulate it, we can feed it into apps, we have these open APIs, things like that. I think we're all working towards that future. But we have to remember that, um, you know, none of that works without the security, without the underlying stable system. And a lot of the work that we do at DCI is really thinking very carefully and deeply about security. What are the different ways that things could break all the way up and down the stack from the hardware on your machine to the operating system, to the libraries, the compilers you're, you're using to build the code, how can backdoors get into that? You know, we have to be very paranoid. We have to think very carefully about the security of these systems. And, you know, I also think it's worth remembering that um, you know, this sort of, the, at least the cryptocurrency revolution started with Bitcoin um, about 12, 11, 12 years ago. That's not actually that long, you know. Um, these systems have not been around for that long, and they're brand new cryptographic and distributed systems protocols. And those things take a while to harden. It takes a while to bang on those things and make sure that they are correct and that they're not going to fail in unexpected ways. Yeah, I mean, this, uh, this is, uh, it, it touches on a lot of things, you know, open source is sort of, uh, and, and, and really the, I think a lot of the decentralization movement and, and open source software, the cathedral and the bazaar, the, the kind of famous uh, essay that, that looks at how do you, you know, crowdsource the best, uh, the best, the most secure code is the code that's most open uh, that, and, and most transparent and and there's a, a real um, desire to kind of experiment out in the open and to iterate out in the open and to, you know, le leverage that intense, the intensity of peer review that is the real world um, on these things. And so, I mean, the Internet sort of evolved that way. And, and, uh, and certainly, um, you know, I, I can remember, you know, first generation Internet, you say, hey, you're going to you're going to put a piece of software, you're going to be able to put a word processor in a web browser and people would have laughed you out of the room like this is like a joke. You can't do it. It's not it's not going to work or or with video, um, you know, the the uh, the idea that you needed centralized, highly controlled, you know, resilient infrastructure like satellites and cable systems and so on to deliver television. Um, but then you know what, actually you could do it with open standards over the open internet. And this balance between centralization, decentralization, and the constant ability to increase quality of service, security, resiliency on decentralized systems is sort of a feature of the internet. Um, and, um, and I guess we're, we're, this is 
I think to some degree what this uh, this discussion of you know stable coins and central bank digital currency and will they coexist and is is one of is one of these sort of born and grown out of the internet um, as standards and is another um, you know kind of built to be operated as a kind of controlled resilient system and I'm interested to hear how 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 each of you think about that juxtaposition and um, and how that how that could play out. Anyone can jump in. Yeah, yeah I, I guess, you know, I'll, I'll start in, you know, I, I think, you know, you kind of have to, to break down your know, fiat backed digital currencies, you know, into to three parts. You know, it's kind of what type of money is, is backing it or, or collateral, you know, who is responsible for operating the technology that actually, you know, issues and redeems it and who operates, you know, the network uh, that, that, you know, digital currency is, is transferred over. So you could start to see the spectrum of design choices uh, that are emerging where at one end you have, you know, these private sector led, uh, the leading existing stable coins, you know, like USDC, you know, that are backed by, you know, treasuries or commercial bank money issued by fintechs and operated, you know, transferred over public blockchain networks with thousands of nodes uh, that are, you know, validating transactions. And then on the other end, you know, you could imagine a digital currency backed by a central bank reserve, you know, issued where the technology is operated by the central bank to create it, and the network is operated by the central bank. You know, I think there's a lot of room in the middle of, you know, options for, you know, public and private sector, you know, partnerships to be able to, you know, back and issue digital currencies and operate the networks that they run on. And so we think more digital currencies will emerge in the future and they'll land somewhere you know, across that spectrum, and they could, you know, potentially, you know, coexist, um, you know, or engage in, in market-based competition for various use cases, you know, based upon diverse properties that they can have. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of Fedwire money, which is a particular form of electronic money, and then there's Visa electronic money. And, you know, today, at least, Visa electronic money has a lot more utility value than Fedwire electronic money, just for everyday kind of stuff. But, you, you know, Fedwire money is, like, really important for, a certain class of very important scaled transactions with a very clear set of, of controlled trusted intermediaries and sort of, you know, it's that interplay. Um, other thoughts from, from, uh, from you guys? Well, I think one I, thing, I, go to Dan. Okay, I, I was just gonna respond to the security sort of point you made before about open source. You know, it's really surprising. Um, I think sometimes people think because something's out in the open, it means that people are looking at it. There is a very long tail of stuff out there that no one is looking at. And if if someone, you know, it's it's very time consuming actually to audit all of this software, yeah. to really break it apart. And there aren't necessarily the right incentives in place to do that yet. You know, I mean, we the incentives around open source software is really, really complex. We see things like, um, you know, bugs in, in OpenSSL and in really, really core pieces of software, which tons of billion dollar companies rely on, but it turns out they're being maintained by a couple of people in their spare time. So, you know, I think that there really is this, this, this issue with open source software that we need to figure out how to solve. And we're really seeing it in the cryptocurrency world where there's so much money sloshing around, yeah. where how do we fund that very deep, important work of mm -hmm. doing the auditing, of looking at all the software, um, of testing it rigorously, of really making sure that it's um, that it's top notch. I just wanted to make that point. Yeah, no, it's it's like the bar is so much higher in 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 the technology for digital currency uh, than than you know the kind of protocols that that you know yeah we can get streaming television and it's great over the internet, but you know sometimes broadband goes down, and uh, you know what do you do? <laughs> you know if if the internet goes down and you've got digital cash, you know what do you do? Um, Interesting, interesting questions like that. I guess this, um, I want to come back to this higher level theme, which is, you know, when, when, when we juxtapose, uh, you know, sort of uh, these sort of regulated digital dollar stable coins versus envisioned um, public sector, central bank, digital currency, you know, how much of this is a payment system innovation versus something that actually really has an impact on uh, the actual sovereignty of, of, of money issuance. Because um, I, I think about stable coins as 
protocols and formats for the use of sovereign money on the internet um, and as fundamentally a, uh, a, a very significant you know, payment system innovation. It's, it's more than a payment system innovation because of the programmability and, and all the things that come with that. Um, but I, I think um, there are others that have this have a view that um, you know if, if there's a token that represents a dollar and it's issued by someone in in the private sector, well, that's not the role of private sector. And where are we in this? Is this a payment system innovation? Um, is there you know uh, can the technology be created by operated by um, the private sector or open source combined with the private sector, combined with uh, public sector supervision and engagement? Like, you know, wh where do we sit in those in those trade-offs? Um, Bob, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I, I think this goes into Jeremy some fundamental questions of what's how are you approaching this this problem? I think you can make it where it is exclusively a payments innovation. Uh, a pure technology innovation where you don't change the intermediary stack, for example, right? Um, so you can keep the current system where the central bank creates the money. Um, that money goes to a commercial bank, uh, which has a Fed account, and they use their leverage ability to effectively 10x that money, if you will, and, cr and create through lending, right? And the rails change a little bit, but the underlying intermediary structure doesn't change. Um, and that can make certain types of money more interesting from a programmability standpoint. It can make the rails more resilient, theoretically. Uh, it can make them more efficient uh, and more safe. Um, but the overall monetary system isn't changing. Um, and for most people, the monetary system works pretty well. Um, I think what the stablecoin approach, and we certainly discussed this when we were at Circle, is it, it takes the money outside of that constrained environment or that, that limited environment of the commercial banking. Even though most fiat-backed stable coins are ultimately sent, you know, commercial bank deposit tokens, if you will, um, it, it lets them leave that environment. Uh, and that can be really interesting. Um, you know, certainly there, is, there are people for some reason or other who are not in the banking system. And that is a critical challenge for the Federal Reserve to address and for all central bankers to address. How do we make sure financial inclusion is at its maximum? Um, and we need to get better at that. And so we need to explore some of the type of technologies that Circle has explored and your peers have explored to understand how do we reach that 7% or so of people who for some reason are not part of the banking system. Um, and, and the good part about this project with MIT is we're trying to look at all those policy levers and, and what can folks like Neha do and, and, and our team do that can make more people in the system or can really fundamentally change how people access the system. Hi. Yeah, one, one thing I'd add is you know, we've kind of started with, you know, really closely watching the, you know, rapid growth, you know, of, of the stablecoin uh, ecosystem across the world. And I think, you know, one thing that's really stood out, you know, has been uh, the, the emerging uh, kind of global vibrant developer community uh, that are building, you know, new products and, and services uh, on top of stablecoins. And so I think you could argue that, you know, stable coins and public blockchains, they can, you know, help lower that barrier to entry to, you know, building new digital wallets and financial services. Uh, and that's great for consumers to have, you know, more options uh, in innovative products. And you know, we're starting to see this with, with our business today, um, just with, you know, we, we launched this FinTech Fast Track program last summer to make it easier for startups uh, to partner with Visa and issue, you know, Visa credentials. Uh, almost a, a third of the companies that are are coming to us, you know, are you know building on digital currencies in some way. Uh, so we're really excited about it as uh, really a a platform that developers are using that could build new products and services that can then help you know address financial inclusion. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's fascinating to watch, obviously, uh, and seeing you know a, a smart contract based stablecoin uh, that people trust. Uh, that it's essentially an open API for dollars on the internet. And it's amazing to see what people are doing with it. So, I mean, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of companies innovating on, on, on USDC and like, we, 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 they don't have a relationship with us or Coinbase. It's just like, they're just, they're just building. And, and we're in the, you know, we're in the very early stages of the innovation curve of programmability. Um, and, uh, and, and look, there's going to be bad things that happen. You know, I, I, I say it, but like, 
there, you know, we've, we've seen, you know, DeFi contract hacks, we've seen all kinds of, of things, which, you know, if this was sort of uh, the, the official system of dollars uh, in, in the economy, we'd say, whoa, hold on a sec. Um, the, the, but, but at the same time, you know, the, the, the rapid pace of innovation is, is, is obviously really, really significant and, and commendable. I guess um, I'd love to actually just ladder off of that and, um, you know, just imagine some scenarios and, and, and just get, get all of your perspective on if this changes the calculus, in particular of this question of the coexistence and or integration between the stablecoin world and the central bank digital currency world. So, you know, one scenario, which I think is not an unreasonable scenario, is that over the next two to three years, um, there's hyper growth in, in stablecoin usage. Um, and it goes from, you know, tens of billions of, of stablecoins into the hundreds of millions or maybe a trillion plus or more. And then all of a sudden it's as, as you know, getting to a level which resembles the distribution of cash and, um, you know, there, there are scenarios obviously where, you know, large scale internet firms um, are deploying this. And obviously there are large scale internet firms deploying this, but that, you know, a broad range of internet companies, you know, um, and, and FinTechs and large financial institutions are sort of uh, adopt this and you sort of have that hyper growth. Does that, does that uh, affect how the Federal Reserve uh, would look at this. Does, is there a de facto digital dollar at that point um, that that needs to be then regulated differently? The reserve model regulated differently. So that's one scenario, and it's not a it's not an outlandish scenario certainly. Um, and then another scenario is is more geopolitical in nature, which is um, you know the you know say the the digital yawn um, is sort of free floating and made widely available on the internet and um, countries, businesses, individuals that are transacting with China, which is probably in the next five years, the largest economy in the world. Um, you know, it becomes a, a sort of, uh, you know, over the top, I like to say, uh, you know, kind of currency system. And does that change the calculus of, of how, uh, how CBDC, at least from the United States perspective and, and private sector stablecoins would, would work together. Anyone want to take the bait on that one? <laughs> I'll, I'll say something really quick, which is, um, you know, we started working on CBDC in around 2016. That's when we, we first hired, um, we hired our first person from the Bank of England Absolutely. and, you know, yeah, at that point, I think we were we were hoping we were hoping things would move quickly, and they were moving very slowly. So yeah. uh, it's definitely the case that all of the things you just cited have accelerated this conversation dramatically. Yeah, um, I think a lot of folks who thought maybe this was 20, 30 years out, not something they had to worry about right now, realized no, this could be a five-year problem or less right. and that we really need to get smart on it. So um, yeah, that definitely the things you mentioned have been an accelerator. Yeah. yeah, And I'll agree there that with Neha, certainly, you know, I can't speak on behalf of this Federal Reserve System and our team as a technology team, right? Um, but what's critical for us to understand and one thing we, one reason we've launched this is we know that the, the private sector like Circle, uh, like the Center Consortium, for example, are building really interesting technologies that we need to understand deeply. And so regardless if they go to a certain asset threshold that becomes systemically important, and you saw a little bit of that with China, right? Uh, the public statements by the People's Bank of China, one of the leading reasons to use the DCEP program was because of systemic risk of Alipay and WeChat, right? They, they thought that there was systemic risk in those two companies. Yep. And so the Chinese government really had to learn how Alipay and WeChat worked, right? To build or help build their own system. Um, you know, one thing our team does is we're building our own in te internal testing environment to put technology like Center's USDC technology or the Libra technology through a comprehensive testing environment to understand what kind of at least technology stresses that would put on themselves mm -hmm. internally if they got to a scale of a dollar. Mm -hmm. um, because we think that you have to understand the underlying technology if that does happen and what kind of systemic risk that would pose, um, at least from a technology standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would just add that you know, there's there's clearly you know growing demand you know for stablecoins, and I think you know as um, you know stablecoins you know grow, you know, they, they present this kind of 
you know, live ecosystem to observe, you know, what developers are building uh, and how consumers and businesses are interacting with these, you know, cryptographic, you know, bare assets. So I think, you know, as the stablecoin ecosystem matures, you know, we can start to see what features and what infrastructure, you know, emerges. And if it's addressing use cases that central banks, you know, might be looking for, for CBDC, uh, and if there should be, you know, different properties or, or different designs of digital currency uh, to be able to do that in a, a safe and secure way. So there's several several pieces that I want to I want to ladder off of uh, from, from comments that, that that each of you have have made um, that that I think are really interesting and, and worth talking more about. So so one is and actually you know speaking of the Chinese uh, you know DCEP. Um, there's sort of the two-tier model uh, that people talk about, right? Where you have, uh, you know, there's some component that's centrally administered, um, and then there's another tier, whether it's large fintech bank-like firms or actual uh, commercial banks that can operate this technology. And, and there's sort of a, a, a two-tier model. Um, and I guess um, the way I've thought about it, at least, is you know, could could um, could private sector arrangements um, for standards for things like digital dollars, like USDC, could those eventually just become standards that were supervised by, you know, the the Fed or other central banks, and um, and but the 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 underlying uh, money becomes, you know, you know, central bank M1 or or an equivalent, um, but. The, the sort of technology is in in some ways more like how Visa grew, right? Which is, you know, the, the central bank doesn't run the card networks, but it's, it's sort of, the, it became a private sector consortium of firms that said, we're going to build standards for interoperability uh, for electronic money settlement. And, uh, and it's going to sit a layer above, you know, Fedwire or a layer above, uh, you know, other, other networks. And, um, it seems inevitable that like, at least in the West, like a two-tier model is, is, is what's going to happen. And it's, it's sort of a question of, is it something created from scratch by you guys? <laughs> or is it something that happens organically um, uh, through public-private kind of collaboration? Yeah, I mean, I can say the two-tier models, it's what we do now, right? The Federal Reserve does not handle individuals. Um, that would be a major mission change for us to start managing individuals' accounts or individuals' wallets. And the public private sector does a good job of that. Um, so there is a neat fit there. Uh, and America has a long tradition of, you know, the public sector with its mission-driven approach, working with the private sector to innovate well. I mean, putting a man on the moon, the internet, right? That, I mean, the, the whole growth of the internet, that was a public and private sector partnership that continues to this day. Um, so there's a really nice fit there, Jeremy. I think you're exactly right. Um, because that opening accounts, that's something we don't do for individuals right now. And that would be a big change. And the private sector does it pretty well. And firms like Circle, you know, when we were at Circle and learning about how to really reduce that friction to get more people in the financial system, I think that's something the private sector has done really well. And, and we certainly need to learn from. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I really, really quick, Jeremy. Yeah, um, someone said this to me before. I'm just going to totally steal it from them. But a nice way of looking at these big projects like the internet and, you know, the moon landing and things like that, um, you've got .gov, .edu, and .com, right? You've mm -hmm. got, like, all these three different pieces that have been really critical in bringing these things to bear, right? And it's, it's not one side on its own. Yeah. You need, obviously, the innovation of the private sector. You need the regulation, the representation of the people from the public sector, and you need neutral research, fundamental research and design that often comes from academia and that can't really be provided by the public or private sector yeah. necessarily. So, you know, it's yeah, really interesting to think here. about. Yeah, yeah, there, there are .orgs. Uh, yeah, um, but it's really interesting to think about about these pieces of the triangle. I can, I, I like that concept a lot. Uh, it resonates, uh, it resonates well, well here. Um, I guess um, another piece of this, which has been has been talked about, um, and we've talked about it a, a little bit here, which is, um, you know, um, you know, digital currency, generally speaking, stable coins as they exist today, and potentially, you know, digital cash as a product of central banks, you know, you know, in theory, have this attribute of being bearer instrument money. And, um, and, and even in like a, a two-tier model, right, 
if it's, if it's just a, an electronic record at a bank, it's, it's no longer a cash product. It's no longer bare instrument money. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's um, a lot of, uh, you know, discussion about privacy, anonymity, self-sovereignty. Uh, these are like core, core attributes that have drawn people to cryptocurrency. Uh, but, but that also, you know, tie into, you know, product manager of cash at the Fed thinks about those issues. Uh, the U.S. Treasury certainly thinks about those issues. Um, but, you know, uh, where do we think we need to land on that? And that's one of the most controversial pieces of all of this. It's one of the lightning rods that gets, you know, people on, on I don't want to say both sides, but on multiple sides of this, you know, pretty, pretty fired up. Because when you have bare instrument money and it has the speed and power of the internet, that changes things. Just like when you opened up the internet as a communications medium to everyone everywhere, that changed things too. Like my kid can go get recruited by ISIS on YouTube. Um, or, you know, uh, people can gather and crowd, uh, crowd uh, organize a, a revolution in a country that's a dictatorship or, or things that, uh, and they use Tor and they use uh, secure communications to subvert um, authoritarian regimes. And, you know, there's all these sort of trade-offs, privacy, anonymity, self-sovereignty. And, um, you know, this is all going to kind of come, I don't want to say crashing down, but come kind of come together in, in the design of digital currency models. And um, where do you think the Fed sits on, on those issues? Well, I mean, I can't speak on behalf of the, the entire Fed, certainly. Um, but, you know, I can- Come on, Bob. That was like a softball. Yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> I mean, I, th I think there's there's some really key issues there, right, Jeremy? And I think it's not just how does the Fed think about security and privacy, right? Uh, to Perneha's point, when we think about future payment systems, security is everything, right? The dollar can't break. Um, that being said, we do think about in our research questions of, you know, what kind of data transmission happens on that network, right? So the Bitcoin network transmit transactional data, right? It's Jer, you know, Jer's wallet, not even Jer, wallet A sent to wallet B, X amount of BTC, right? And that's all it sends. Um, a world in which you may have a private sector actor doing all of that, right? In your world, having a second layer of, say, a monopolistic actor doing it, that's a lot of information uh, that one private sector actor gets. And, you know, you know I, I've heard you say this a ton of times. You know, Mark Andreessen talks about the original sin of the internet, which is, right, people's a barter people's data for avenue ad revenue right and that's something people think about for public goods right is, is how if, if we have a public mission um to provide central bank money how do we do that and protect the public's data uh and this is where our work with neha and her team is really important because secure you know when you think about security you know how you have to really think deeply about security and challenge that security question that if you're going to collect any data you have to understand how is it protected and how robust is that security protocol. I mean, even Bitcoin itself isn't entirely secure. We all, you know, people who know it well enough know that that's, that's true. Um, if you get enough mining power, Bitcoin can be attacked. Um, so we need to think about these fundamentally because it is a public good and the people's financial data is really important. I remember uh, when, when Sean and I first walked in and talked to you about what we were doing with Center and, and USDC. And um, I think one of the criticisms that you had, uh, which is totally legitimate, was, well, this is centralized and it's centrally issued. And, and there was a lot of focus, I think, at DCI on censorship resistant forms of digital currency and, and supporting that development and privacy related technologies and the like. Um, I'm sure that continues to be a focus uh, uh, for, for, for DCI, but as it relates to this exploration on central bank digital currency, what are your thoughts on how, how, that, how those designs can, can play out um, with public sector money? Yeah, um, well, I think, you know, in some ways we're kind of running two really huge experiments right now. We've got the cryptocurrency world, which is, as you put it, very decentralized. Um, you know, these groups of developers from around the world, all different time zones, it's very hard to get on a meeting together, you know, just writing the software, putting it out there, people running it, people picking it up, it's amazing, right? And we are seeing massive amounts of experimentation and people putting 
um, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of tokens and cryptocurrencies into contracts and sometimes losing that money, right? We're seeing a lot of experimentation and variation in that world. And these systems were specifically built and designed to be hard to turn off and hard to regulate and hard to sort of find those points of control. And there's a certain value to that because it allows a certain type of experimentation to happen um, that maybe couldn't happen in, in, in other more sort of like different types of structures. Um, that said, money, especially fiat money, you know, the dollar is not a decentralized good. It's, 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 you don't, fork the dollar, right? It's not a, you know, decentralized governed sort of a thing. There's the Federal Reserve, there's the United States government, there's, you know, there are these, these actors in place who created the dollar and, um, and thus have control over it. And we need to acknowledge that. And so, um, you know, I, I do think, I don't think fiat currencies are going anywhere anytime soon. I think that they are still pretty, pretty important. Depends which ones. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, maybe it depends which ones. Um, they're still incredibly important to people's lives and make a huge impact. And I think it's important to look at that area as well when we're thinking about redesigning this technology, which is, you know, kind of what you're doing with stable coins, I think. Um, so really, these are two different approaches mm -hmm. that have a lot to learn from. Like, we can learn a ton from the lessons of the last 12 years in the decentralized world to think about how to carefully design an architect a CBDC. I mean, that's the that's the idea here. That's why that's why we're doing this because we think there's some value. So I don't see these two areas at odds at all. I think they I think they work together. Um, and and in order to sort of have that experimentation, have you know that crazy stuff happen, a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money, unfortunately, but they're taking that risk, and uh, and then learning from that and bringing some of the best ideas from that into the fiat world. Mm -hmm. I, I I it's. Great perspective. Um, I want to I want to touch on something that that Kai um, had referenced as well, which is, and actually, uh, you know, Brian Brooks, who who now is the head of the OCC, you know, talks about you know, um, the you know the dollar needs to remain competitive. Uh, that, that there's a you know there's a, a competitive economy for fiat currencies, and there's 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 obviously the monetary policy is part of the product, uh, and and you can and you know the sovereign credit and all of that good stuff. Um, but then there's the utility value. Like, you know, what is the, what, you know, how do you build better features? How does the dollar become a more feature rich currency? And now we're moving into a world where there's actually competition on the utility value of fiat currency when you are now moving to this realm of digital currency. And so you can design features, uh, which is very, you know, I mean, cash, you know, what's the security technology or the anti-counterfeiting technology might have been features of a, of a physical note, but now there's like real, real utility. And, and this touches on something again that, that Kai, you, you brought up, which is the amount of developer innovation that's happening with programmability um, that's happening that, you know, this in some ways, and this is, you know, part of our view and vision, which is payments just becomes a ubiquitous free service on the internet. There's, there's actually, you know, it becomes this much broader thing and that this isn't just about payment system. This is about a bigger set of innovation, which is sort of in the economic contracting layer that now businesses uh, can construct and program economic contracts in really, really profound ways. And, and, and that's like the, the ultimate utility value um, that, that exists here. And um, I'm curious to hear, you know, each of you think, you know, reflect a little bit on, on that, that layer of all of this, whether it be on what's happening in the private sector today or what might be possible in public sector related C CBDC uh, initiatives. Maybe I'll start with you, Kai. Yeah, so I think there there used to be a, a clear line between you know software companies that would provide you know software as a service solutions you know for businesses to help them do things like manage expenses and simplify accounting, and then you had financial institutions that would help businesses send and receive payments. You know we're now seeing a trend where software companies are embedding payments you know into their workflows. Uh, to be able to add uh, additional value for their customers. Uh, so just a, a quick example, you know, if you had a large company and you, know, you want to spend $100,000 in AWS, you might fill out a purchase order on a Word doc, you know, email it off for approval, um, you know, have it land in the accounting department, and then they use their financial institution to make a wire. 
you know, this is now being replaced by software. There are companies where you submit a request, it's approved and it automatically initiates you know, payments. And so this design space of how can you program payments as a feature within software platforms uh, is really expanding. And you know, many companies are, are using Visa products to do that today. And uh, we're excited to see if smart contracts and digital currencies can further you know, accelerate that trend. Mm -hmm. Bob, or, or uh... yeah, I'll go ahead. Um, I think you know going into the question of programmability. I think this kind of goes back into that multiple layer uh, system that you, you discussed earlier, whereby when we talk about our general purpose research, we're really focusing on, as Neha said earlier, security. Right? Security has to be the ultimate issue there. And when you add programmability, certainly you you expand the attack surface of that software uh, or the digital currency software, and that's something we think about deeply. Um, you know, there is a world in which, you know, the underlying prototype could be extremely secure, but have very limited programmability, but those private sector partners or commercial banking partners, they may be able to add that programmability. And I think they already are, you know, so banks are having open APIs now, certainly the Fed now program, which is 24 seven real time gross settlement that enables banks to work a lot faster with their payment sector partners. Um, but on our research, which is the core general purpose CBDC, you know, security is really the ultimate factor we think about. And so programmability is a nice to have, but at any threat to security, we really, it really is subject to strict scrutiny on our end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Echoing that. I mean, I really think there are, um, there are different stages to technology, right? Um, and, and, you know, it's a big question. What stage are we in right now with the cryptocurrency world and cryptocurrency technology? Um, when I think about having a really robust platform, I think about a layered approach. So I think about the internet stack. I think about those protocols, how the bottom layers were not dependent on the top layers. It wasn't all squashed into one mm -hmm. virtual machine. There was really nice, clean separation. Yeah. Um, and as we are, you know, doing our research and, and looking into what we can do with programmability, you know, we found that with a pretty small number of core features, you can, you can get a lot out of them, right? Um, you know, if you use the right signature scheme, if you, if you have you know, time locks, things like that, you can really get a lot out of the upper layers. Now, this is a pretty difficult paradigm to program and experiment with is the problem, right? Um, the, the paradigm that's easiest to sort of experiment with and try lots of things is one where you basically can write JavaScript. You can, you know, you can have thousands of developers who are writing all of these easy to write contracts and um, that's where experimentation can happen. But I, I really think, you know, and I might be wrong, but I really think we're gonna have to translate what works in that area into a more robust architecture. That's what I suspect mm -hmm. we'll need to do. Makes sense. I, I think um, we think about the, that layering as well. And like uh, we, we in some ways look at USDC as a protocol and it needs to be independent actually of blockchains. It can't be tied to a specific blockchain. And there's so much innovation happening in different fundamental architectures for this. And so and that's something that that we'll be we'll be rolling out a lot more of is sort of how do you use this as a protocol on very different types of blockchains that support different use cases um, and, and the like. Um, so I, I always like to end um, with with uh, with predictions um, uh, from from folks, and um, you know cl clearly uh, it seems like internet scale money, uh, digital cash models are are here. They're emerging. They're growing. Um, and, uh, and, and I'll sort of ask, uh, two related questions, which is sort of, um, you know, within this kind of regulated digital dollar stablecoin space, whether it's USDC or, or Libra USD or uh, others that still ha don't exist, um, three years from now, you know, what do you guys think there, there will be in circulation in, in those? <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll go first if no one wants to talk. So, um, you know, I'm really bad at predictions, so I, I never get anything right. But I will raise the question, um, isn't, you know, the US dollar the ultimate stable coin in a way? Um, you know, what, what, is it, what does it do competition-wise if something does come out and is really, really has the right features around it? Um, you know, how do, 
how does the stablecoin uh, arena evolve? Um, you know, that's something I'm really curious about. I'm not making predictions necessarily, but I think it's going to be really interesting to see. Mm -hmm. Kai? Yeah, I, I'm not making predictions either. Uh, we're, we're seeing a, a ton of interest in, in activity and, and I expect that, that to continue, but uh, I can't, can't put a prediction on it. Right. And, and, and Bob, will there be a Federal Reserve uh, digital dollar central bank digital currency in three years? I, I cannot say that there will be a digital dollar GPCBC in three years, but what I do hope to have with, with a lot of Neha's help is an open source uh, platform that we're going to offer the world uh, to take a look at what might work um, mm -hmm. so that not just the U.S. can benefit it, but from any country or any software developer wants to explore how this might work better. That's cool. I like that. Um, all right. V very well. Well, uh, this has been a really nice conversation, covered a lot of ground, could have gone on on, uh, on a lot of it. We went over a bit. Um, so I, I just want to thank each of you for, for joining today. Thanks so much. Thanks for, having Thanks for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. So a, a great deal to synthesize there. And these, these themes um, are going to just amplify, I think, very much uh, month over month, year over year as we go forward. And we'll continue to come back to these uh, here on the money movement. Um, uh, next week, we're actually going to step away from stablecoins. Um, and, uh, you know, we really uh, spent an enormous amount of time on stable coins and uh, the fundamental innovations and in blockchain technology with them. Um, and we are going to, you know, dive for a moment into the Bitcoin thesis and uh, really try and take a look at where we are on the journey of the Bitcoin thesis, what that core thesis is. Um, it is today the largest digital currency in the world and continues to grow in its use very different um, design center, very different set of, of, um, of goals in many ways than things like uh, digital dollar, stable coins, or, or CBDC. And we're going to be joined by two um, significant leaders in the space. One is uh, Michael Sonnenschein, who is managing director of Grayscale Investments, who manages one of the largest um, publicly investable Bitcoin funds in the world. Um, and is part of the Digital Currency Group. And Dan Moorhead, um, an earlier guest on Money Movement, but will be rejoining us. He is the CEO and co-chief investment officer at Pantera Capital, uh, one of the uh, great uh, kind of global macro thinkers uh, for, for decades, actually, uh, before um, applying his global macro thesis to, to Bitcoin. And, and we'll hear from both of them on where we are on the Bitcoin thesis and journey. Until next week, stay well, stay safe, and stay informed.